Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's Jean Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations. And I have this gentleman with me who is architect, educator, author, planner, and just an all-around smart guy who um, is very committed to New Orleans. He doesn't live here at the moment, but I'm sure he'll be back pretty soon. It's very pretty hard to, res to resist this place. He comes from Ville Platte, am I right? Absolutely. Okay, so he's definitely of our region. And um, we're going to talk to him on a few different levels. So we're going to talk about architecture. We're going to talk about an incredible story that he has about doing a project in Costa Rica in the woods that, believe it or not, has resonance, has reference for our need for affordable housing in the city of New Orleans. And that's one of the reasons I really wanted to talk with him. So, um, so let's let's hear what he has to say. Um, Anthony Fontenot, architect, and did I get the right list? Yes. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Um, Anthony, uh, let's start with the the fundamental issue that we need we need to address in New Orleans are two things. One, housing that can weather, so to speak, mm -hmm. the changes that are developing in our climate, whether it's water related rising ocean or it's uh you know stronger storms or it's flooding or it's drought mm -hmm. i mean who knew that we were going to be dealing with drought all summer of long and, and and intense heat so it's it's just there's unknowables really i would have to say because nobody really predicted that drought and <clears throat> nobody can predict the uh the river flooding that happens all over the place it's not right. just about what's going on in new orleans and and on our lower coast here. Um, so we, we need to deal with that kind of housing question, environmental issues. The second kind of issue is affordable. And you know, I'm so sick of hearing people talk about affordable and I don't see, I don't want to use a bad word here, <laughs> getting done. Yeah. I don't see anything getting done. I agree. And, and, and you turned up with this peculiar situation, totally idiosyncratic, that wound you up with the need to do something inexpensive, of quality, and done really fast. And so I, I feel like we should literally start with that story, but I wanted to put it in the context of why we were talking about it, because mm -hmm. people can say, why is she talking about a house in the jungle in Costa Rica? <laughs> you know, so we had to kind of put it in some kind. So why don't you start with your perception of the need in New Orleans and Louisiana and, and, and really the whole damn coast. And then our coast is, as they always say, the canary in the mines for what's happening <clears throat> in coast uh, worldwide. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, as you just said, the question of affordability, I always ask very specific questions. How much does it cost and who can afford it? And, and I mean that seriously. I teach at a university. I once did a calculation of my yearly salary and based on that yearly salary, I could not hire an architect to do a house for me. So if I can't afford a house, to me, it's a pretty clear uh, indicator that there's a large segment of the population that certainly cannot have an architect involved in a house, much less even just any kind of new house. So this issue of affordability- let's, let's just remind everybody that not only are you a graduate of Tulane architecture, but you went on Not to really. Princeton. I was teaching at Tulane. You, ta you taught there. Yeah. yeah. And you go to Princeton, you, you get your PhD, 
and I don't know, you probably have some other ancillary degrees along the way that <laughs> I don't even know about, but I mean, again, you, you've put your time in and your, your investment in having the qualifications to be able to pay for a house. One would think. I, I, just, I just indicate that to, to highlight how few people today uh, can afford a house yeah. that, that right. an architect has to do it. Then you can move to the next category, even a house that an architect doesn't have to do it. And maybe I should back up and, and offer a little bit of a historical perspective. I've spent the past <clears throat> five to eight years studying the work of uh, Los Angeles-based architect Gregory Ain, who was practicing in the 1930s and 40s. I also recently published a book on Gregory Ain. And what intrigued me about Gregory Ain, he's one of the only architects I'm aware of who was able to actually not only design affordable housing, but actually build it. And we actually have these examples in Los Angeles today. Unfortunately, they, they were never reproduced. But one way that Gregory Ain was able to do this was to reduce the size of the house. So the smaller the house, the more affordable. It's a logical idea, right? So the smaller the house you, you design, the more compact it is and the more efficient that plan better be. And the, all, the more you better be a very damn good architect that could design a well-organized and comfortable house at such a small scale. So after studying Gregory for a number of now, years- Now, Gregory let me just point yeah. out to my audience because I think it's really interesting that this was a- uh, uh, architect of color. No, no, no. Greg Rain was and his partner was. Uh, James Garrett was. James, James Garrett, Garrett okay. was an African-American architect and they were partners throughout okay. the 1940s and 50s and okay. 60s. Right. But, but no, if, if I mean, to give some background, Gregory Ain uh, studied with Neutra and Schindler, some of the, you know, greatest modern architects of Los Angeles. So he came out of that background. He's the next generation in a sense. Um, and in, in any case, from Ain, what I got was the, um, the need for an affordable house and a high quality house. And one way he was able to do that was to reduce the size. So as I'm studying and um, exploring Ain's work for the book, COVID happened and I moved to Costa Rica. Um, and during my time in Costa Rica, it's a long, complicated story that I won't get into. But through a cousin of mine, I inherited land in Costa Rica. I happened to go down to Costa Rica and after 16 years of trying to get the, the land under my name, it coincidentally appeared under my name in January of 2021, right? Right as I moved there. So um, again, I don't think we should get into all the details because it's incredibly complicated. The bottom line, I was um, meant Well, the bottom line is that in order to prove to, to secure your ownership, you had to prove that oh, you had possession. an edifice yes. on that site. And That's it wasn't exactly. just vacant land, right? That's exactly right. Okay. So, 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 the Go goal, so the goal became, and then furthermore, uh, um, there had been some struggles of other people trying to take over the land. Right. And I needed to show possession. And one way was to build a house. Um, it was also, I was also informed that almost um, it was almost certain that because of these struggles, if I start building a house, that the other people would go to the municipality and shut it down and just hold it up in court and dispute it for years. So it, it became an issue of, I need to build a house very quickly, within even a week. <laughs> build a house. And, Let's build a and, house and, in a week. And, oh, and, a week. and it also had to be an incredibly um, uh, cost-effective 
as low as possible. And, and because, of course, I'm an architect, so it needed to be uh, of a quality as high as possible. So after meeting many local um, contractors, I met this extraordinary guy who took on the challenge without an issue whatsoever. And in fact, within less than a week, we built the house. Uh, first day, they built the, um, the uh, sorry, first day they um, dug the footings, put up the structure, uh, framed the entire house, put up the roof the next day, uh, following that, put the floor. And at that point in Costa Rica, that is technically a house. If you have a roof, and a floor. So I had achieved everything I needed to achieve within four or five days. So, oh, and of God. course I was living in a hammock the entire time. So I was officially <laughs> occupying my house on the land. And at that point game was over. So after, after that, we then proceeded to enclose the house and the house I should, should state it's in meters. So it's um, six meters by six meters. Half of that is enclosed. And well, six meters by six meters is so, approximately so, how many feet? Yeah, it's um, under 200 square feet. So under 400 square feet for the total house, half of which is indoor and half of which is outdoor. Now, when I say indoor, none of it has any enclosure like glass. Everything is enclosed only by screen or the the, the concrete board. Um, I use all the materials. So that, that would work here from October through May. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, so, it, it's designed for a climate. It's it's meant explicitly to breathe, to use the natural ventilation of the place to let air move. I've as, as I've said before, I don't even need a fan. It breeds so well in the jungle. There are trees all around. It's cool, never an issue, day or night. Um, so of course, having completed that house, of course, it became a question. Could that house um, be something that one could translate into the Louisiana landscape? Um, what, what parts would translate, what parts would need a change? Um, the great, and, and I should also say the house was built for approximately 10,000 US dollars. Wait, let me get this straight now. How many square feet again? Again, 400 square feet, half of which is not built. It's outdoor porch. So but, it's a, but it's still a it, living, yeah, I mean, that's yeah, your yeah. kitchen, right? It's, it's my kitchen, kitchen and living room. And living room, and living room, room. outdoors. Yes. yes. And, and, um, and, and you built it in a week and it was $10,000. Yes. Did y'all hear that? Let me say that one more time. $10,000 built in a week, 400 square feet. You know, I live in a house that's a lot more square feet than that. Truthfully, where do I function? My dining room, what is my dining room here? About 20 feet by 10 feet or something? Yeah, something like that. Okay, so that's about 200 feet. And my bedroom is about, um, I don't know, uh, 15 by 15, something like that. So it's about 500 square feet that I actually live in. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, well so, 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 so what was so that's livable. <laughs> so what was interesting saying. is that after building it uh, and completing it, sorry, I then lived in it for many months because it, it, it was necessary to kind of test. Is did I in fact accomplish what I set out to do? Was it comfortable? Did it have a quality? How was the light? And because of the clear stories at the top, it, it brings in a beautiful morning light into the house. Um, the, the roof is situated again to maximize the, the airflow and the breezes. Um, and of course, in addition to that, we ended up, um, well, I, I should say the contractors were incredibly impressive because their ability to build 
or that the craftsmanship by which they build is remarkable. And of course, a main difference is of course, the cost of labor differences between sure. Costa Rica and here. Sure. Yeah. Actually, certain material costs in Costa Rica are actually more like uh, tools and so forth. At, at yeah. a typical hardware store, you might pay more in Costa Rica than you would in, in the US. Sure. But again, labor is what was uh, the so, drastic so difference. If you, if you, let's say you were doing this um, house concept uh, here in, in New Orleans, and you had to pay the labor rate that's typical here. And by the way, the labor rate here is, you know, it, it's various. We have a lot of mm. um, folks who've come here since Katrina, mm -hmm. and they, they are not being paid labor rates uh, according to the union rates, which I favor. Let right. me be very clear. I mean, I think I, people should be paid. I absolutely it, agree right? with that, one hundred percent. So if I it, also support unions, one hundred percent. Me too. Yeah. So, so if you paid, let's say, um, closer to what would be an average uh, pay scale for labor here, um, by approximately what percent higher would your labor costs be than they were in Costa Rica? I actually don't know that, and I think that would That's be an the, that would be an right. interesting thing to yeah, figure out. Right. In fact, uh, I probably should have, I had it somewhere, but I probably should have paid closer attention to the number of hours, and that would have right. been the key to yeah, translate this. Exactly. Um, because, they, well, but in that case, it was also such a unique circumstance needing to do it in just a few days. Right. That would never happen and, and, normally. And, and again, I should be clear, what we did in a week was put up the structure, put up the roof, and put up the floor. Of course, it took longer to enclose the place, which was sure. to, to enclose it and screen in certain parts. And then he, the contractor, was this extraordinary craftsman who was able to build all the cabinets, build furniture. That Ooh. obviously took longer than a week, but yeah. but all the parts slowly came together right. and all within a very, very small okay. budget. So what is your, I, I'm, I'm trying to live a life in, in the middle of uh, dealing with medical issues for my husband of understanding always when something is just a pain in the neck, what is the lesson learned? So what did you take away from that experience that instructs how you think about building especially affordable housing here here well here here in the u.s yeah. uh the, the the number one lesson would have to be you have to have an a very good contractor and you have to know how to work very very closely with that contractor and furthermore you got to be able to figure out all the issues and the problems with that contractor on the site which is what i did um i might spend or in advance um i would know because I mean, that's, that's I, as an architect, I submitted plans. Well, guess what? We changed those plans constantly because on the site, all these issues came up. And so we were able to resolve them together, sketching on the walls. At one point, the entire rooms were just covered in pencil sketches because he was <laughs> he was very good at sketching. And so that's how we communicated largely. So we were able to resolve all the issues. But most, most of the issues that came up were 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 different than, of course, what I put on paper. And the, and they convinced me to change things, and I think they were right. So that's one thing I learned. The um, I mean, to, to take it to the next level, how might this translate to Louisiana? First thing that would come to mind, in fact, I'm considering doing one in Louisiana for myself, but something very simple. So it would be, can you build something that you accept that you only occupy this 
eight, nine months out the year. When it's the coldest months, you simply don't. That's one strategy. And well, they only have one cold month when you come Well, more or less. But sometimes that cold month can be 20 degrees, as we saw last year. Don't you well, remember the freeze it, it, last what, year? Two days. It, two but, days. But, but it's freezing for two days and on and on. The, the, the point being... You know what? I lived in the... I, I grew up in New York yeah. in a rent-controlled apartment. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the policy in New York was... By, I forget what time in the morning, but I'd, I'd say probably maybe around midnight or one o'clock, they shut the heat off. You could not have heat <laughs> in New York at night from sometime, I, I really don't remember exactly, but I want to say around midnight until about five in the morning. Right. No heat mm. in the north. Yeah. Okay, let's go. So, so in, in any case, I mean, that would be one way to think about it because the advantage of that would be that you don't have to enclose this, the place. The moment you start introducing glass and serious enclosure, the price will inevitably skyrocket sure. compared to something that doesn't need that. But that's, that, that's, but that's the first- When you say skyrocket, but still okay, be perhaps. what would be defined as affordable. I, 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 would, I would assume, I'm just saying, you would spend a significant amount enclosing the place with proper glass. Mm -hmm. that, that's, that should be noted. But then as you're raising, it may very well be that, okay, well, let's take that next step. So version A is you accept it without enclosure. Version, when I say enclosure, I mean sealed with glass. Version B would be that you do insulate it, you do enclose it. And uh, having done that, what would the cost of that be? In terms of insulation, I'm actually very- I was just about to say- No, in terms of insulation, yeah. I'm actually very interested interested in the traditional ways in which we insulated houses. I'm talking about in the 1700s, 1800s. Which was one? Mud. Mud. Yeah. mud. It was one of them. It was actually a technique that the colonizers learned from the Native Americans and the way they built structures and incorporated. But many, many walls. So those houses that we have with the wood slants, and yes. it's, it's called what? Uh, uh, water... Well, there was a name for the, that kind of architecture. What yeah, uh, the, the, well, the boussolage is the technique, and it's done in Acadiana of using mud as a way of, of insulating houses. There are many, many, there's not one way, there are many ways. Yeah. And I, I actually think it would be quite interesting, and I would be completely open to investing, investigating that, because once you have the thermal mass, it both keeps the house cool and it keeps the house warm. Uh, the house in Costa Rica currently has no insulation. It doesn't really need it because the point was to keep the air flowing. So, so I think there are ways to do it using not just low cost, but environmentally friendly material, basically free, the dirt. That's why I think it's not a coincidence that the large majority of houses around the world were built of dirt, mud. It's, it's, it's the cheapest, most available material. We've gone quite far from that, but, but these basic strategies, I think is what interests me. Like, and, 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 and certainly, I mean, when, when you talk of the word mud, people immediately come up with images of hut-like structures. When the truth is, again, with, with mud, you can still build architecturally- um, Significant. Houses. Appealing yeah, and yeah. significant houses, yeah. right? I mean, right now, uh, rammed earth and a whole range of different architectural um, designs using dirt and rammed earth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is, is one of the most cutting edge kind of materials architects are exploring today.
David Ajay um, at Vagosian Gallery displayed a, a rammed earth sculpture just to highlight how that material is has now entered a new kind of level of appreciation. And just for people who are not that engaged in the art world, the Gargosian Gallery is kind of one of the top galleries in the entire world for dealing with innovative architecture and sculpture and and the arts in general. So yeah. So 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 it's I, I think I think it's a I think it's I think today merging the, the the traditional methods and the kind of innovative methods is really where we are. I mean, um, in order to achieve low cost- That's important. So it, that, that was order to, my next question. You know, yeah. thematically, if, if we look at New Orleans, New Orleans architecture is, you know, we wouldn't be here if it weren't for a combination right. of things like our live oak trees, and our architecture our, and our culture and music, right? We just wouldn't be here, right. you know, so, unless you, you're still <laughs> embedded in the petrochemical industry, which ain't going to be for too much longer, right? Um, you know, really within our lifetime. Um, it, it, those are the things that are important. So, so if 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 merging some of the cl classic traditional architecture that is still a lot is still up off on the ground here in New mm -hmm. Orleans with um, these uh, with new um, architectural design ideas is where you say things are going. Well, I mean, or can go. Yeah, but I would distinguish between um, sometimes there's an interest and even obsession with how things look in New Orleans as opposed to how they perform. And what I mean by that is I'm intrigued by the use of transoms, et cetera, et cetera, doors, uh, natural ventilation, how to make this. The, the houses or the buildings perform in a certain way, how to keep air, how to keep it cool, how to get light in, all of these things, as opposed to what its facade necessarily looks like. Sure. That's very different. So I think it, that's exactly where we are, trying to bring in um, um, natural materials and trying to bring in a, a spectrum of different techniques that have been tried and true at a very, very low cost. The, 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 the problem always becomes low cost. We can do many, many things when we have a high budget, but the moment you ask for a low cost and high quality, there's very few people, I would argue, that have been able to successfully um, uh, make that happen. Where have they made that happen? I'm just curious. Okay, historically, I, and this is why one of the reasons that, uh, I think some of the most innovative stuff going on right now in the world is actually in Vietnam. Young architects in Vietnam are doing, and again, using bamboo, using many of the local materials, and they are, I would argue, on the cutting edge, as wow. well as places like in Bangladesh and India. There's uh, Ant Studio in, in India doing extraordinary work just using, um, com, you know, just using terracotta pots. They've invented the first carbon-free air conditioner. Carbon-free. They're using just... Um, natural materials and water. So um, terracotta uh, jars, water, and they've built a series of these, they've tested it. It's working and now they're incorporating it into houses. So these are the places I look to wait, find wait, wait. innovation. Terracotta, terracotta jars and water? Yeah. Wait, I don't understand. It's just terracotta jars so that the air moves through them and water is used. It's an ancient technique of cooling. The Persians use it. Many, many people use this technique. How that, explain that to me. So water drips through, air moves. The water is cooling the air and it's moving through the, um, 
the the terracotta uh, pipes. These the pipes are just there. This is kind of how our air conditioners work, isn't it? Well, this is done without electricity, without carbon. This is. But I, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah. It, yeah, it's there are many air conditioning oh, systems. Well, I mean, but I mean, water is used to cool the air. Yeah, it doesn't it's, I, it's, in a basic I, way. I don't know yes. what I'm talking about. <laughs> right, I'm not right. an architect, but but but, but, but I wanted point, to be one, but, but I never but, did. But, it. but the point is, there are places around the world that I've been studying and and admiring their ability. Sorry, their abilities to use really basic, low cost techniques and do what I would argue very sophisticated, achieve very sophisticated outcomes for a low cost. Yeah. So yeah, again, Vietnam. So why wouldn't New Orleans be a perfect um, studio, so to speak, without you know the whole city? Why wouldn't we be the perfect studio for exploring this this idea of working in new design and old housing techniques? Anthony, what I think New Orleans has failed to do is take advantage of its problems. You know, so much of new innovation is based on solving problems. Absolutely. And we need to solve the problems of water rise, um, disappearance of our wetlands, uh, um, surges, uh, heat, um, uh, the droughts now. I mean, right. the whole the whole nine yards and affordability above all. Yes. Because, you know, there was a point after Katrina, when we had all these young things come mm -hmm. to town, oh, we're going to go to New Orleans and help them, and wow, and then mm -hmm. they get here, and the culture is fantastic, and a lot of them stay, but they can only stay here so long, especially as post-Katrina, and I don't really understand exactly why this happened, except gentrification, obviously, mm -hmm. was a component. Housing prices, which used to be remarkably low here of and there's a reason people came here have gone up but drastically not just going up drastically drastically but uh the a headline i saw today was housing prices are falling yeah but when, sorry to interrupt but when the prices are so outrageously inflated falling means almost nothing, nothing. to a very large percentage okay. of the population so so again affordability is the other issue that we should be demonstrating and with all of the architectural styles, one of the things that kills me about New Orleans is I'll go down a street and I will see 19th century, I will see Native American inspired, I will see super contemporary with, you know, those square houses and slanted roofs, mm -hmm. and, and then uh, the shotguns, um, Tan, Bob Cannon's mod gun, right, right. can't help but you know, mention that. And, um, and, and, and then all the mansions with all the, the Greek uh, revival right. and, and, and um, uh, all the different eras say, what is it? Um, what do they call it? Uh, oh gosh. Um, say, is it Queen Anne? Queen Anne yeah, is just a multiplicity of styles all all yes. on one block, right? Right. I don't, I guess there's some other city where that's true, mm -hmm. but and then you had this whole movement where a lot of people of color moved out of the south at a certain point when things, when, when I think from what I understand, and oh God, somebody out there, correct me if I'm wrong, but the way I understand it is that after the Civil War, when 
all people of all shades got classified basically as black, mm -hmm. even if they were so-called Creole or they were, you know, various, you know, shades that a lot of people left here and went to lot uh, for some reason, Los Angeles in particular. Mm -hmm. And then you go down streets like Napoleon Avenue and you see all this mission style housing and you say, where the hell did that come from? Right. And the arts and crafts, and it came from those people who became contractors on the West Coast and came back and did architecture here. Am I wrong? Um, I, I don't know that for a fact, but it makes perfect sense to me. That's there, what the, I've always conjectured. Yes, yeah, yeah, no, the, there's, a, there's a very, very large uh, percentage of the African-American population in Los Angeles that is of Louisiana. Yeah. Uh, not enough researchers on that, but yeah. So there was a back and forth. Yes, of course. That's what I'm assuming, because yes. I look at it, I say, man, that is pure West Coast arts and crafts. How'd they get here? Right. And, but, the, and this, guys, also, you know, was something you probably don't know that I love. When I went to work in Panama with, with Frank Gehry on developing a museum, mm -hmm. Um, I discovered that the Casca Viejo there, which is their Vieux Carré, mm -hmm. their old city, yeah. their French Quarter, um, had a big fire. Not too far away from when we had our big fire in the French Quarter. Mm -hmm. And um, when they were rebuilding, the housing was so similar to New Orleans. It's unbelievable. Have you been there? Yeah, I have been there. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. You, it's you it's feel also like the same in name in Cartagena. Yeah? Right. You go from Cartagena to Panama City, and North, they're all Spanish colonial cities. So you go in the front, in, in the Cascaviejo there, you're going to see um, these, these houses with uh, the iron balconies. Right. So when the fire came there, they had to rebuild that. Guess who did all those balconies, all those uh, iron balconies? Our contractors of color. Hmm. Who did them here? That would make perfect sense. Down there yes. they go. Right. So there's just so much interesting, I think, nuances about our architecture that have not really been um, acknowledged, recognized, mm -hmm. celebrated, that uh, could through, you know, that's a, that's a whole different kind of architecture than what we're talking about with the mm -hmm. affordable housing. Right. But I don't see, actually, again, why you can't figure out a way, as you're saying, to integrate the affordable housing techniques, mm -hmm. the building techniques with some of the, the styles that we have kept alive here. Right. You think about Bayou, uh, Moss Street in, uh, along the Bayou mm -hmm. and that housing that's- Of course. You know? Yeah. yeah I, I, and I, the I, Treme, you know, to, a block away from my house. Right. You have houses that have been there for, 200 years. I, I, I think there are, there are definitely both building techniques, materials, a whole range of things that would be useful to revisit and rethink. Um, just as the shotgun house was once a kind of minimal house, affordable, it was seen as the minimal house. To reinvent that today and make it affordable would be one idea, right? How it's, it's not just an idea of affordability, how to actually build it and make it. And when I say affordable, can we build a house for 30,000? Can we build a house for 50,000? Who can do it? I mean, I, I think it's doable, isn't it? Well, uh, it would You're be. You're going to try to prove it, 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 right? It would be very interesting to do that because I think, I think that's a kind of level of, if, and furthermore, oftentimes we get affordable and very, very low quality. And that's specifically what I'm not interested in. We have plenty of examples of 
of just kind of generic boxes called affordable, uh, a container house, except not that container houses are necessarily of without quality, but I, I use that as an example of these kind of uh, just a kind of mass produced uh, kind of environment that one might be able to get uh, at an affordable um, price. I think there's still something in the craft in making something and it's just how to kind of accomplish that at a, again, affordable price and a high quality. talk about the architecture of New Orleans and 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 contempt and, and changing contemporary architecture. So now when you drive down a street, you know, right, I mean literally a block away from me, mm -hmm. and I'm gonna see a house going up. And it 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 may be a kind of melange, so to speak, mm -hmm. a, a little bit of a mixture of um say typical housing in New Orleans, whatever that is, the most typical forms mm -hmm. that air down, you know, balconies and, and lots of big windows. And, uh, and then there are these contemporary houses that were being built, I would say, more 10 years ago that were built by your friends and the architecture students mm -hmm. with the slanted roofs right. and, the, you know, boxes, which I don't love in all honesty. Um, or even flat rooms, which mm -hmm. is totally insane in a, in a place like this with the rainfall that we normally have. Mm -hmm. um, but how do you see architectural design uh, opportunities, let's call it, going forward here and, and elsewhere? Let, let's just deal with the coast, okay? Mm -hmm. If you just deal with the coast, Hannah did a series of, of maps as art that show the different, um, uh, what is it? It's not sea level. I always want to say sea level, but the different uh, elevations. Elevations. Thank you. That's uh, the word. Of, of the land. Yeah. Itself. Yeah. And, 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 and there's a lot of very low elevation land yeah. from here to Miami. Right. And, and around the other side of Florida as well. And, and, um, and we have to accommodate the changes that are coming, whether people want to acknowledge it as man-made or, you know, climate mm -hmm. change or not, it doesn't matter. It's happening. Right. Whatever's causing it, it's happening. So, um, you know, what's going on? What's going on in architecture that I don't know about? Well, no, I mean, in, in architecture, uh, year, I can't remember how many years ago now, but uh, I did, I spent some time, um, I was also teaching a, a new courses on the idea of floating architecture oh yeah and i did an entire exhibition global uh, investigation of looking at what was happening within the world of architecture of course following katrina i would argue uh there was a kind of proliferation of ideas about floating architecture that are still being developed now you have high-end architects um Bjorki Ingalls, you know, doing a floating city for the UN. So it's gone from small scale, even those things were implemented here in New Orleans following Katrina, um, to a whole range. So that's one way um, that architecture and architects have been trying to respond to these inevitable changes, which is to say, uh, in fact, in, uh, so, so architects are doing that here. And of course, it's high-end, oftentimes high-end architectural um, accomplishments. 
again, what I find fascinating, there's a, a young group of architects in Vietnam who did a floating house, HMP architects. They did a floating house that costs literally, because it's all made of bamboo, a couple of hundred dollars. Wow. And they've actually built it. It's actually a, 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 a manual, a kit of parts, one encouraging people to build it themselves. It's probably some kind of and, catalog. And it's an incredibly that. beautiful house, all built of uh, bamboo. And so those, again, not just the floating, but again, how do you get the floating and affordability? But does floating work here where we have these, again, these huge surges with the hurricane? Well, again, it, it all depends on what context. If you're talking about deep in the Gulf, probably not. If you're talking about a, a, an area that is prone to uh, fluctuations, a couple of feet fluctuations where the traditional house and level would not work, the floating house, Bangkok, the government of Bangkok has been doing extensive research and implementation of floating houses to test the idea because we're not unique. We're in a delta. We're not unique. We have deltas all around the world. So this is why I look at places like Bangladesh. This is why I look at uh, all around the world, the Mekong Delta in, um, in Vietnam. These are the people I believe we should be having conversations with. This is who we should be doing. What are the innovations happening there? What are they learning? What can we teach? Um, what kind of conversations and architectural developments? So that's what the entire Floating Cities project was all about. Years of research, working with students, uh, finding out what was happening around the world. And then we did an exhibition highlighting this. I'm not saying it's the answer. I think it's one and partial answer. It's actually happening in various capacities all around the world but i think we need many many more so, uh, reactions and, and developments now, the other the other um trend that i hear about which is kind of frightening and 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 if you ask the people at il st charles uh in yeah. louisiana how they feel about it and, and it's 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 they probably all have most of them ptsd right now because they literally had to move out of their homes of course move up uh and 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 it cost millions millions and billions of dollars to simply move them back up into higher land yes and so that's another i mean tannen talks a lot about how we're gonna have to migrate you know and so what about migration so 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 the question should then, we be building houses that are literally not like mobile homes but which are mobile in some way, yeah. other than you know the, 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 what we think of as mobile homes. Well, I mean, we don't need to build those. If you want a mobile home, they're available. If you want a camper, they're available. I mean, if you no, want to be I mean, mobile, to something better than that. If you want to be mobile, that's available. I think the bigger question is how to establish an actual community in a place and not be forced to constantly. If one chooses to be mobile, that's one thing. But if one is forced hurricane after hurricane that constantly have to move i think that's a very different so the question for me is how and where can you re-establish community and maybe those communities look and act very differently than what they left but what kind of infrastructure what kind of um um questions one would grapple with if if communities are having to uh move from the delta and I mean, all of these things are happening at the moment, right? You, you're well aware that there's plans to kind of relocate parts of the Delta up north, but what those communities are and uh, and how, but but I remember speaking to people in um, um, Illusion Charles and other places in the Delta. The first question is, 
if they've been fishermen their entire lives, where are they supposed to fish if they're moving north? If you're moving north of the I-10, for example, you know, what's your relationship to the Delta? What's your relationship to fishing? So those are difficult questions, right? That'll not get resolved by any kind of, uh, you know, it's not an architectural design problem. These are much, much uh, more structural problems. Um, th th there also may be this idea that there's a kind of uh, like moving, but seasonally living part-time in one place, part-time in another. Which humans have been doing forever. As the, as the, Animals, kind of, as the hurricane season intensifies, maybe when it's a temporarily retreat, maybe they can return. So I, I Which is what they do now. I mean, you know, I've evacuated about four times so far. Of course. Myself. I think many people, especially, uh, the, the problem is that the storms are getting more intense and more frequent. Yeah. I mean, it used to be something that would happen every 20, 30 years. Now it's happening almost on a yearly basis. We're getting various kinds of storms. So, you know, we're going off subject, but I think all these questions still at the heart of it is housing affordability, regardless what it looks like, where it's built. That's not going to change. I mean, um, we, you know, uh, in, a, in a state like Louisiana, one of the poorest states in the nation, affordability has to be an issue. Um, and one of the lessons I would say um, that, that Ain always insisted on, Gregory Ain, was always kind of, um, his greatest desire, as he said, was to develop an architecture that was relevant to the common people, that could solve common problems. And he said, the more common a problem is, the more we should be addressing that problem. What is the most common problem today? And, and the question would be, why aren't more people addressing that most common problem? And why aren't they? Well, that's... Um, that's, that's so, that's... so here's something I, I, I want to just uh, bring into the conversation because um, it's something I, I think about almost every single day. Mm -hmm. There are three, four... And I don't know enough about the fourth, but I, I've, I've, and I, I, I don't know even about all four that I know about uh, entirely. Mm -hmm. But you've got a development, a major land development happening around Audubon Park mm -hmm. uh, by the river. Okay, you have another major development happening around the power plant in um, the. I guess you. You, I guess that's the garden district in a way, most of the garden That's the Loricella project, the one in Audubon. I don't know about those people. I just discovered that was happening. I didn't mm. even know that was happening. You have the Araby development, um, the Ford plant with 20 acres and, and um, uh, riverfront mm -hmm. part of the property. Um, that is another major potential area. That was um, not as far along in its development plans, um, but you've got 250 square feet, 250,000 square feet in the building mm -hmm. with views of the river and the skyline of New Orleans. And it, it's pretty remar remarkable that the um, city tourists and his people are involved with. Then you have New Orleans East. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know enough about um, uh, what's uh, happening there, but I do know you have some a lot of very available land there that can be developed, mm -hmm. uh, redeveloped, you might say. Right. Okay, so what annoys me, to be honest, is that I feel like all of these developments are being controlled by the developers, mm -hmm. not by the citizens of New Orleans, not by government, not by nonprofits. They, they're just they're just kind of yeah they have to jump through some hoops 
and, and they have to kind of make some kind of a um, tip of a hat, mm -hmm. so to speak, to affordable affordable housing. And so right. they usually will have some section of, of course, their, that's but, a minimal percentage. But, but that's why are developing developers calling the shots? Why aren't the people of America who own this land theoretically mm -hmm. in a in a philosophical sense? They don't actually have, you know, again, you know, they don't have the paperwork, right? You know. Um, why so, why aren't we develop, dealing with those big sections of land which could determine the future of the city? They could have major cultural facilities. They could have you know co working spaces. They could have a, a interesting and, and appealing, mm -hmm. attractive, affordable housing. So, but right now, it's the developers, and what are they yeah. doing? The same old, same old. Right. They're doing, you know, mixed use with the office towers and condos, so, and come on, that's so, the best we can do. So, so along those lines, a second interest that Gregory Ian had, and that he actually developed and implemented, was cooperative housing. And he was actually on the cutting edge in the 1940s of cooperative housing. One of his most well-known cooperative housing in Los Angeles was the Avenal cooperative housing. Um, Ten veterans came to him separately at first, asking him to build a house. And this was right after the war. And he told each one, there's no way, given the limited amount of um, material available, no contractor would take this on single house and kept turning down till finally he, it occurred to him. He said, but if you as a group, 10 of you would come together, you could probably attract um, a, a contractor who would want to do that scale of a project. Plus, as he pointed out, if you buy the land and divide it by 10, you'll cut your costs in half by 10. So suddenly this, the, the, the cooperative model became a really powerful model in, in, in the mid 1940s. Um, and, and in fact, he developed um, Avenue and a number of others. So that was a way to economically be able to uh, afford housing. And, and a great line that stands out to um, um, Vernon DeMars, who was a writer and advocate of cooperative housing, one said that it's a very, it's based on a very, very simple concept. The one, you know, the, 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 what the one cannot do alone, the many can do. It's just a very simple idea that you could only accomplish so much as an individual. The moment you collectively act you can do a very, so, very different thing. So, so, so cooperative yeah. housing was was and is, and I think, still be. a very viable okay. model for affordable housing. Two things. So theoretically, um, this, this is something I thought about right after Katrina. I was mm -hmm. thinking, wow, why don't we take the model of cooperative housing? Because my concept of cooperative housing is based on apartment houses in, in New, New York. York. Yeah, which is a very, very different, different model. Different very, very different But nonetheless, model. I thought, why don't you take a block where there is, 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 is maybe there's a, a third of the block is viable, livable housing at the mm -hmm. moment. But if, if the owners of those properties jointly purchase the land on the rest of the block mm -hmm. and developed it themselves, um, why wouldn't that be a model that could work here? And, and in fact, the community development corporations are supposed to kind of do that, but I don't really, I haven't, I don't understand what's going on with the community development co um, corporations. The only couple that I know of, it's like the one that did the um, 
Pythian. You know, and that, well, I don't, you probably don't know about that. No. So, all right, so that was on, um, I think, O'Keefe, uh, in, in the Central Business District, let's okay. just put it that way. I don't remember exactly the, which street that is because it's it's right near City Hall, but mm -hmm. it collapsed. It, it didn't it didn't work. Mm. And, I, and I just don't know enough about other examples of corporate. But I, I agree with you that cooperative housing is a, is a potential model. So, so. What yeah. do we have to do to make that happen? No, seriously. <laughs> well, well, the, I, I mean, uh, based on the historic model, first thing you have to do is have a need and have people come together. I mean, the cooperative, of course, has been around for a long time, not just a housing cooperative, but multiple kinds of cooperatives have been around for a long time. And I think there's a growing interest. Even the UN, uh, what was it, 10 years ago, highlighted the cooperative as one of the most viable models around the world for every kind of development, including housing, but economic development, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think it's a matter of a, a new generation, perhaps a young generation, revisiting some of these ideas and kind of bringing to it kind of fresh uh, ways of rethinking the model and engaging the realities of what we're dealing with today. I'm excited about some of the things that we've talked about. I think there's so much potential and you know, I still can't get over the whole saga of your Costa Rican property. It's just, there's no story I've heard in a long time that um, I celebrate in my mind and think that is proof that we can be more innovative, ingenious, and effective in helping people get affordable housing. Um, but what, what, what have I not asked you that is in your mind about what is potential and happening that we should be looking to how we encourage in this market as, as again, as a model for how we can develop it elsewhere. Because I really think that the most important thing New Orleans can be doing is to demonstrate the model of how to solve some of these problems that we have, that we know everybody else in the world is having and will have. Well, to answer that, you, you, it's almost like asking the opposite, which or, or pointing out the opposite. It's well, no, it, it's, to state the utterly obvious, uh, housing is driven by the market and market-driven development is one of the only models we know. Gentrification is the dominant model. There's a lot of talk uh, around it and maybe that would like to challenge it. Very, very few practical things I'm aware of has had any impact almost across the board with gentrification. I, I point that out to say on the other end, I think it would need to be a, a very radical in the sense of something that removes itself from the markets or, or in, in the, the, the house in Costa Rica, there's nothing, there's nothing non-market about it. It's a viable house. It follows the codes. It was built, et cetera, et cetera. Um, to, to ask how to do that here, um, I don't know. I, I would encourage people to simply take it on and build it. I mean, we do have a tradition here of building camps, right? <laughs> of almost self-built small kind of things. I mean, usually one is not always concerned with quality and so forth, but, but the uh, idea of building, and I'm not promoting some DIY strategy, but, uh, but I'm actually much more interested in when, you, when groups are engaging actual craftsmen as we did in Costa Rica. I think it's much more interesting. Uh, so one, at least here in Louisiana, one thing I look forward to is uh, in the next year. Or so is to actually test this model here and actually demonstrate and see what the pitfalls are, see what is able to work and what doesn't work here. Okay. 
So here's here's what I'm going to say to you, Anthony Fontenot, um, still somewhat young architect from Villeplat, from here, get busy. <laughs> and I don't know what you're doing on the West Coast if it's so exciting, yay. But how about how about helping us? I mean, I, I think, you know, uh, leadership is a funny thing. I kind of both believe in it and I don't believe in it. I think that one of the things we're suffering from in this world is too much macho leadership. Hmm. You know, the Netanyahu model. There's that model, which is sad and tragic, and, and I hope we can get over that pretty soon. But um, there is the model of single people being able to rally and make things happen. So, Anthony, my charge to you, my challenge to you is to take it on. Good. Let's talk in a couple of years and hopefully we'll, we can be looking at completed projects. Okay. I ain't waiting for a couple of years. <laughs> a year. I ain't waiting for a year. <laughs> All right. You said you did that house in a week. I did. All right. Yeah. I would like to see you have a model of that house. Um, you can do Tana's mob gun design. There's your design is already there, but at, or 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 do another design. You know, we have that show coming up with Frank Gehry and Bob Tannen. Right. Mod gun at the Oro Keefe Museum in Biloxi, which too many people oh, oh, in the city of New Orleans never heard it's, of. It's no, 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 oh, it's at the Oro Keefe uh, Museum. Okay. Uh, on March 2nd, it's going to open and it's going to be open through next spring. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, I actually, I'm not sure exactly when it's going to be closed, but it'll it'll be open for a while. And, and maybe the occasion of the opening of that show, which is going to bring some major media, of course, maybe we should have this house built by then. By then, but in the spring. By March 2nd. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that when the media comes to town to cover the Gary Tannen mob gun design, which is, uh, again, right. that was a design to be affordable housing that you could build the first room right, right after a disaster and keep adding on to it, right? Mm -hmm. That's the whole idea behind right. that. So um, we're talking about you know, another idea that's similar that would, would bolster the reality of being able to do that kind of housing. So, um, yeah, you need to build that house before March 2nd. Unfortunately, I'm teaching all semester on the West Coast. Well, uh, well, put your <laughs> students to work. That's what I did when I was teaching at Tulane. I was, I was putting them to work. All right. I all right. think we're just about out of time. This is Jean Nathan with Anthony Fontenot architect citizen from Louisiana who's coming back. He's going to build an affordable house between now and March 2nd. <laughs> and y'all um, uh, have a great uh, week. I'm going to be doing some more focuses on certain disciplines between now and the end of the year. So tune in next Friday again, uh, 12 o'clock on WBOK. Um, uh, 12.30 a.m. Thank you very much, WBOK, for giving us the freedom to have a conversation Thank like you, this Jean. on mass media. All right. See you soon.